0: In my last lecture, I concluded with some remarks about Luther's growing hostility to Jews, but I argued that these remarks were really outside the radar of most people, both pro and con, about Luther's uh, ideas and what they meant. It wasn't really until Hitler's Third Reich took an interest in such ideas that they became widely publicized among Lutheran and Protestant communities. Also, the Turks, believe it or not, really didn't become demons outlasting the initial threat that they did pose in the 16th and 17th century. And of course, the Turkish threat was a lot more real than any threat that might have been proposed uh, by Jews. Rather, I argued, it was Jesuits this new religious order founded by Ignatius Loyola in 1542 that would, not immediately, but in the long haul, over time, gradually become a new other, uh, the first real new other to come out of the Reformation, at least, of course, for Protestants, not, not for Catholics. And it culminated this sort of fear, uh, fear of Jesuits and a whole demonology connected with them uh, an international world conspiracy of mythic proportions. It culminated in the 19th century, as uh, this magazine cover, I think, gives you a good idea. And there's still uh, remnants of this even today. If you type in Jesuit conspiracy on the Internet, you're going to get some pretty uh, crazy books. But this hysteria about Jesuits isn't really part of the Reformation, either. It, too, lay in the future, Back in the 16th, and even perhaps especially in the 17th century, there was another menace that obsessed Europeans, far more than their uh, dislike of Jews, their growing fear of Jesuits, or even fear of Turks. And this was witches. In fact, it's very interesting. In the locales that persecuted witches, they didn't persecute Jews. And vice versa. Now, today we have a lot of trouble conceiving of witches as something scary. In our children's books, as I can tell you from looking at all my grandchildren, witches have gone the way of ghosts. That is, they no longer make your hair stand on end. They've become cute little helpers uh, who help the little girl or the little boy out. And if you type witch into Google Images, you'll get something either cutesy-kitchy uh, or perhaps you'll get uh, something uh, sexy, uh, erotic, or perhaps you'll get both. <laughs> so I want to begin by taking us back to the late sixteenth century, back in the day of the witch panic and I want to walk us through a real event and walk us through the hist- the reasoning. The hysterical or maybe historical reasoning that made these events possible. So here is a real case. In 1591, Catalina Mateo, a 50-year-old widow, was arrested. Sixteen people in her Spanish village had accused her of killing four or five small children. And they were convinced that she was a witch. Uh, Catalina was tortured, and after she was tortured, she confessed. And here's what she said. About four or five years back, a neighbor asked me if I'd like to be a witch. And I, she said, if I said yes, I would get to have sex with the devil, which the neighbor said would be a pleasant duty. Catalina said she agreed, and a meeting was arranged at a neighbor's house with a third woman as well. The devil entered in the form of a goat, a typical sort of topos at the time, and he asked for some piece of her body in order to seal the agreement. So Catalina said she gave him her fingernail. And this ritual concluded with the three women dancing around the goat, and then he had sexual intercourse with each of them as the other two looked on. Then, at midnight, the witching hour, all of them still nude, They had gone through the window of a neighbor's house. They had seized a little girl from her bed. They had suffocated her. They had burnt her buttocks. They had ripped and cracked her arms. And the noise had waked up her parents. And so the three women and the goat escaped through the air back to the neighbor's house where they put their clothes back on. Now on other nights, they had gone to other houses. They had suffocated other children. In the case of one little boy, they had ripped off his private parts. Meanwhile, the goat visited Catalina again and raped her, as he frequently did over the next four years. And she described that in detail. In fact, she admitted he had actually been continuing to have sex with her while she was locked up in jail. Now, when the judge confronted Catalina with one of the neighbors whom she had fingered as an accomplice. The neighbor denied every bit of it. So the local judge had Catalina taken to Toledo. This is a picture of Toledo just about this time, where she then was examined professionally by the Spanish Inquisition. Now, once she got to Toledo, Catalina withdrew her confession, and she begged forgiveness for having borne false witness against herself and her two neighbors. She confessed, she now said, only because she was afraid of even more torture. But the Inquisitors then examined 16 more witnesses, and they became convinced over time that these accusations were true. Now, remember, these are intelligent men here. Uh, There were children found dead and abused. It was a mystery. So the authorities decided they'd torture her again, to get the truth out. And Catalina was taken to a dungeon. Her clothes were removed. And at that point, she repeated her whole original confession. She swore under oath that it was the truth. What were her motives for wanting to kill these little children? Catalina said it was revenge against the parents, which was exactly what the parents had suspected all along. Perhaps because she had confessed and was now contrite, Catalina's punishment for these four or five deaths, and oddly enough, it's not clear how many there actually were, four or five, wasn't the death penalty, or at least not outright. Instead, she was sentenced to 200 lashes with the whip. Now, if that's delivered hard enough, uh, she certainly couldn't have survived. But if she did the lashing was to be followed by confinement for as long as deemed proper, obviously up to the judge's discretion. Now, since she was just an ordinary villager, Catalina Mateo never had her portrait painted. We have no idea what she looked like. But we moderns do have a common picture in our mind about what a witch is supposed to look like. Here, by the way, is a picture of the Inquisition, but done uh, a bit later by Goya. A witch is supposed to be skinny, old, crone. Uh, She has a chin reaching out as far as her nose. She probably has some bristly whiskers on it. She probably has a wart or two. We need to remind ourselves that this description of the witch probably covers most women Catalina's age or older in early modern Europe. Fifty in those days was old. Few people lived longer. And in an age before dentistry, a fifty-year-old was not likely to have many teeth left. Without your teeth, what happens? Your gums sink in. And then uh, that makes your nose look and your chin look a lot longer than they did when you already had your teeth. Nowadays, a 50-year-old woman is very likely to be a chub if she's not careful. But in those days, only the rich were chubby. Catalina Mateo, as a villager and as a widow, was certainly not rich. And so she was almost certainly very skinny. Now, at 50, nowadays, women can resort to electrolysis to remove any whiskers that they might have gotten with age. They've got makeup. They can get plastic surgery if they want to get rid of the lesions of the sun, their warts. Most important of all, we still have our teeth. My point is simple. Many of the physical features that we commonly associate with witches were in those days quite normal for women whose youth was gone, and especially if the woman was poor. Okay, what do we actually know? Europe's witch trials were a tremendous phenomenon because the violence was legal, unlike pogroms, riots, lynchings. And so they've left a tremendous paper trail, and that gives us a real windfall for historians. Research into the witch hunts have been for early modern historians what the Human Genome Project has been for biologists, that is, a full employment act, keeping a lot of people busy for a long time. And in both cases, it's been felt by both sets of professionals that if they could find answers to particular questions, they'd have a key to unlocking who knows what other doors, as well, in the case of historians, about a whole civilization. And this was particularly true because For a long time, historians have thought that the panic about witches was peculiar to Europe, that it existed nowhere else in the world, except in those places colonized by Europeans like Salem, Massachusetts. Recently, however, that view has been dismissed as Eurocentric. Uh, Persecution of witches has been found uh, to have existed in 4th century B.C. Roman Republic, in pre the pre Pizarro Incan Empire, uh, in Madagascar, Indonesia, India, in the 19th century, and, uh, and in in fact in the 20th century, and in Mozambique in the year 2002. So Europeans cannot claim now any special uh, gifts in regard to witch panics. We also tend to associate witch hunts and have with the Middle Ages. But this, too, turns out to be a misconception. The medieval world did indeed believe that witches existed, uh, but they didn't really uh, ascribe any consequences to this. In the Middle Ages, the allegations were usually that people had, someone or other had attempted sorcery, not that they had been successful. Rather, we now know the European panic about witches seems to have been part of the dawning of the modern era. It starts about 1450. There are a few before then, but this is more or less an easy watershed. That is the Renaissance, and it lasts about 275 years. It culminated in the 17th century, the very century that saw the birth and in some places the practice of of religious toleration, the century that produced ideas at any rate about constitutional law, about which more on Thursday. More puzzlingly, the 17th century is the century that saw the scientific revolution. Witchcraft didn't cease to be a felony in England until 1734, the 18th century, the age of the Enlightenment. Witch trials in England seemed to flourish especially under Queen Elizabeth I. In the late 16th and early 17th century, they probably reached their peak at about the time of Shakespeare. And Macbeth, you know, was written in 1605. It opens with three witches. They're chanting over a pot, double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Whether Shakespeare believed in this, I don't know. But one English judge commented in 1603 that the country was so full of witches that unless there were speedy action, speedy preventative action, in in a short time, quote, they would overrun the whole land. We also used to think of witch prosecutions as a result of mass hysteria. And in a sense, this whole period is a period of mass hysteria. But we shouldn't forget that in plenty of places, Uh, these prosecutions were quite routine events. In England, the authorities churned out the trials regularly, month after month, year after year, sort of like drug trials today. Oh, we got another one. Well, let's put him through the system. A war on witches, you could say. A careful count suggests that in all of Europe, Probably 100,000 people, maybe as many as 200,000, were tried for the crime of witchcraft. Of them, between 40 and 60,000 were executed. This is not the 9 million victims that have been been popularized since the 1970s by some journalists and feminist theorists. But 40 to 60,000 is bad enough. Belief in witches was not confined to the ignorant. Thomas Hobbes, who, by the way, seems to have been an atheist, uh, in writing the Leviathan in 1651, mentions witches in Chapter 2. And he says, though he doubted that their craft had any real power, they were justly punished because they wanted to do harm and would have done it if they had been able to. The scientist Robert Boyle, who discovered the law that the volume of a fixed amount of gas varies inversely With the Pressure, Boyle's Law, I learned it in high school, he began by being skeptical about witches. But by 1670, there was so much evidence of witches about that he had changed his mind. Now, the crime of witchcraft usually consisted of two charges, though not all trials emphasized both equally, and some trials only included one. One charge, the oldest charge, was that the witch had harmed her neighbors by practicing bad magic, maleficium it was called. And this was a secular crime, and indeed in Russia and in England, it was the only crime. In Russia, typically, a person was thought uh, who was thought to have tried some folk remedy uh, to cure uh, impotence or a hernia or perhaps cataracts, uh, and it didn't work, uh, was thought, well, he had probably caused the malady that he was trying uh, and failed to cure. And so we see uh, someone who, who didn't succeed in curing the cataracts, apparently, uh, in 1583. Outside Russia and England, however, and even including New England, a second crime was gradually, over time, added to the charge of black magic. And this was the accusation that the witch owed her powers to a pact she had made with the devil. And we see that with Catalina Mateo. And this, of course, turns witchcraft from a secular crime into a religious crime, into blasphemy. And once people started thinking that witches were in league with the devil, a whole cornucopia of other ideas could develop. For example, that witches worshipped the devil instead of God. And here are some pictures from 1610 by an Italian artist and priest, Francesco Maria Guazzo. Here is the devil, and he is rebaptizing a bunch of people. That is, he is making them his own. And here he is ordering them to trample on the cross as a sign that they have transferred their allegiance. And I think this is interesting in these. In these sets of uh, pictures, there are about an equal number of men as women. It was also charged that witches did things at sacred days called sabbaths. They held ceremonies with huge numbers of other witches. Uh, Here uh, is a painting by Hans Baldung, known as Green, about 100 years earlier of preparation for a witch's sabbath. Here's a close-up of the same picture. The devil also got them to perform disgusting acts. Here's a ceremony, and by the way, we can tell it's at night because here are torches, and uh, the women are kissing the devil's rear end. The witches' sabbaths, as they were imagined, were often highly sexualized. Their ceremonies included naked dancing and orgies. And here's Hans Baldung again, uh depiction of naked witches playing leapfrog. Sometimes the devil appears in the form of an animal, usually a goat. Uh, Here's Goya. There are a bunch of people worshipping the goat. And here we see the connection as time goes on, and this is uh, the early 19th century, of the uh, Jesuit myth, which is now growing, with the old witchcraft and devil myth. myth. And here's uh, here's a Jesuit pouring tea for the devil in the form of a goat. And here are some other... Uh, familiars in the back worshiping him. Okay. The witches' Sabbaths were places where thousands of witches were alleged to gather. And that itself was very scary for these people, uh, not only because of what the witches were doing, but the sheer numbers. Uh, few people in these days had ever seen more than a thousand people uh, together in any one spot. A typical town in early modern Europe. Rarely had more than a 1,000 people. So you got to ask if they had these huge Sabbaths, where, where did the people come from? How did they get there that no one ever saw them gathering? Well, you've got the answer, right? They must. Oh, here, I forgot to say they also uh, ate babies. Here, here they are, <laughs> roasting some babies. So they must have thro- flown there, right? Take the goat. Uh, Then there were, of course, more modern forms of transportation, uh, like the broomstick. And here's Goya's depiction of that. Now, the belief that the witch's powers came from the devil seems to have originated not among common little villagers, but urban, university-educated elites. (laughs) You've got to ask yourself, how could these accusations take hold? Where did the proof come from? And the answer, I think, is the power of suggestion in a very complicated fashion. Let's go back to the case of Catalina Matteo. Here we have a situation where clearly some healthy small children have died, babies perhaps. Perhaps it was crib death, which is still very, very mysterious. Then perhaps there's a group of that we know, and then perhaps there's a group of villagers who may not have liked Catalina in any case, and she is accused of killing their children. This still is just an ordinary crime, and they are charging, and they did charge, that she was jealous, she wanted revenge against them. But when a more educated, skeptical, perhaps, judge asks the villagers, how could she have done it? How did she get in your house without waking you? Remember, these are peasants. Their houses are small. They're often, everybody's in one room. How can they answer? They don't know how she could have not waked them up. But the very question suggests to them that there's something mysterious going on. And so the villagers grasp at straws. She must have had some magic herb, magic leaves, which she put under our pillows to keep us sleeping. Now, this answer is the result of the judge's very skepticism of his desire to protect the accused uh, by bringing up questions of probability. Indeed, I think it it seems to me that the witchcraft trials mark a stage in the judicialization of communal conflict. It's no longer just feuds and bashing people over the head. Now you bring them to trial. It takes the settlement of grudges and scores away from the private citizens, away from their vendettas, and puts them in the hands of a more central body, usually the state. So here we see two of our three themes this semester. We see a kind of uh, using of state power, so there is some state power, and we also see a growing separation of public and private. Now, it is this explanation that the judge is trying to make sense of the accusation to explain something that on the face of it is impossible, how uh, a woman could have come inside and killed babies without waking anyone up, that brings us to the element of black magic and gives us not simply a murderer, but a witch. Well, then, the prosecutor, knowing what a witch is supposed to do, he's read the books, asks the defendant a series of what we would call leading questions. Did you make a pact with the devil? Oh, yeah, I must have. Did you have intercourse with the devil? Did anyone else join you? Who were they? And the accused has really given her answers in the very questions themselves. And remember, she is being tortured in all likelihood. So she confesses to everything that the prosecutor is suggesting. And, of course, the power of suggestion works both ways. The witch's very confessions suggest new things for the prosecutor to inquire about. So we get a kind of snowball effect, a kind of chain reaction, which explains how it could happen, for example, that in one little German town, they could execute 133 witches in a single day. That's Quedlinburg in Germany. Now, when you get a huge number of confessions... What does that tell people? It tells people that what they suspected was, all, was in fact true, that there must be a lot of witches around. The Chief Justice of England in the mid-17th century said that when I was young, there hadn't really been very many witches, but now I've never seen so many. One of the results, however, of chain reactions like this was that as they developed, fewer and fewer victims conformed to the traditional stereotype of the witch. The original person accused might have been an old woman, but in the later stages of any local witch hunt, uh, when the person is under torture and is required to name accomplices, eventually young women get drawn in, men, even prosperous men, finally even small children get drawn in to the charge of witchcraft. That happened in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692. Now, of course, we're modern and we say, don't these numbnuts know that confessions produced under torture have to be untrustworthy, (laughs) right? Everybody knows that, right? Or maybe not in some places they don't know that. Try Guantanamo, try Abu Ghraib. Some people, in fact, will always believe that torture works. But there's another explanation as well for their willingness to believe these things. And this is a core difference between the way early modern people viewed the human personality and the way we do. Most moderns have a kind of utilitarian conception of personality. We tend to think people are pleasure maximizers. Uh, We seek to have things that make us happy and enjoy things, and we try to avoid pain. Given the utilitarian view of the way human nature operates, the fact that Catalina Mateo confesses when she's tortured proves nothing at all. She's just trying to stop the pain. But people then had a quite different view of personhood. They believed that the person was like say, a walnut. The outside, the part you see, is a hard, protective coating. It is ruled by conventions and status, manners, uh, laws, social expectations. And people are naturally going to conform to the roles society assigns to them. So servants who have to sleep in the corner of the master's kitchen are hardly going to exhibit their true self if they know what's good for them. They're going to have to act very cautiously. New Christians in Spain, conversos and Moriscos, are naturally going to be very cagey before revealing their inner thoughts. The real nut, therefore, the true person, is the core. And so, to get to the core, you have to crack that shell to see what you've really got, to see whether it's rotten, whether there's a worm inside, or to see if you've got something good to eat. And people believed that under great pain, the shell would crack, and the true core of a person behind the manners and the courtesy and the hypocrisy and the deception would get revealed. So people actually were more convinced that what a person said under torture uh, was true than by what a person freely volunteered. In some ways, you can see this period, the Renaissance, the early modern period, as a period in which people have a great fear of being duped, of being taken in and deceived. The Machiavel is a term that appears in English around 1576, and it's coined, of course, after the prince begins to be published and circulated. What is a Machiavel? If you were going to say, if you called someone a Machiavelli, what would, you, what would that mean to you? Any thoughts? No? No triers? Yes? Who the of, uh, well, that's of course true. Uh, but what does someone who follows the teachings of Machiavelli do when you're looking around and saying someone is a Machiavelli? Yes? Manipulates, yes, and manipulates by holding up a mask, deceiving. It is, the Machiavel is deceitful above all in order to carry out his schemes. So it's possible for people, and they did it all the time, to imagine a distinction between the shell and the core, the outside and the inside. And there's a kind of irony here. This is an age in which people are becoming more and more skeptical about the real of the real and that increases their belief in witches. This is also a period in which a lot of the imaginative writing is preoccupied with deception and hypocrisy. Uh, Some of you may know Shakespeare's Othello. In it, the hero, Othello comes to grief because the man who pretends to be his friend Iago is really secretly bent on his destruction and for no other reason than malice. I am not what I am, he says. And of course, that's the opposite of what the Bible tells us God says, which is, I am what I am. As Hamlet says, one can smile and smile and be a villain. And later in the 17th century, the great French playwright playwright, Moliere would write a famous play about the hypocrite, Tartuffe, and the term Tartuffe in France and also throughout Europe, simply means someone who pretends to be good but is the opposite. Everyone familiar with folk tales, such as the princess who was wooed by a toad, who, when she kisses him, turns out to be a prince in disguise, uh, is preparing themselves to believe that things are not always what they seem. But there were other folk tales in which the suitor was a perfectly normal-looking person, but turns out to be an imposter. Evil could come disguised as quite ordinary people. So here we have a picture of a man who's wooing a maiden. First glance, he looks like an ordinary peasant, right? But she seems apprehensive, a bit reluctant. Uh oh, look at those feet. And look peeping out from underneath his jacket, a tail. This guy, you know what he is. And here's another picture from Italy, 1610. This looks like three quite ordinary animals. It's a big dog, a little dog, and a rather very large snail. What are these animals doing? Well, actually, they're casting spells on the house of an unsuspecting neighbor. In reality, they are witches, or at least what uh, people call the familiars of witches, the animals that accompanied witches to help them do their uh, evil deeds. Therefore, evil could strike you down when you least expected it. Uh, Here's an engraving by Hans Baldung of a stable hand who is struck dead by a witch uh, peeping through the window while he is innocently feeding the horses. How else can you explain someone just dropping dead when otherwise he is in the picture of good health? So you can see fear of witches fed on unexpected deaths, on popular beliefs that things were not always what they seem, or as the witches in Macbeth put it, fair is foul and foul is fair. Okay, let's try to look at some explanations. Who, what was responsible for these horrors? Who, uh, what, what was the meaning? What we would today perhaps call witch studies has been a growth industry, Uh, but though now we know more and more about what happened and where it happened, because trials leave a lot of records, we don't really know why. We still have very few conclusive explanations. So far, research on these witch trials have turned out to be a kind of Rorschach test. You know what a Rorschach test is? You get a kind of a big, ugly blot, and then you're asked, what, what do you see there? And, of course, different people see different things. And different historians have seen different things in these witch trials according to their own preconceptions, you might say, or agendas. Historians used to assume that the stereotype of the witch grew up at first in a series of heresy trials conducted by papal inquisitors in the south of France in the early 15th century. But we now know that these huge records of these trials were all forged in the 19th century by Protestants and anti-clericals as a way of discrediting uh, the Vatican. So that set is wrong. Another surprise, perhaps, is that prosecutions for witchcraft, though they began before the Reformation, proved to be just as common in Protestant regions as in Catholic ones. It's also not true that the clergy were largely responsible for these trials. Initially, the trials took place in both secular courts and ecclesiastical courts. But as the fear of witches intensified over the 16th century, the secular courts took control of the bulk of the prosecutions, at least outside of Spain and Rome. In fact, here is one of the paradoxes of secularization one of the three themes of our course. Secularization grows because you're getting secular courts taking over, but more and more the crime of blasphemy seems to come to the fore. It was the increasingly secular nature of witchcraft prosecutions that was responsible for the dramatic increase of conviction rates as time went on. Because unlike the ecclesiastical courts, The secular courts could harness the power of the state and marshal it against the accused. The secular courts were more concerned with the punishment of the crime than with the correction of religious error, and so execution rates went way up. Nevertheless, although there was no country in Europe that didn't believe in witches, prosecution rates varied. They were lowest in Spain and in the Italian territories, in Scandinavia, though they took place there, in Russia and Hungary, and in northwest France. And in Ireland, surely one of the most superstitious regions of Europe where people were convinced that goblins and leprechauns were what was making their milk go sour or their bread get stale. Nevertheless, Ireland had no prosecutions for witchcraft at all. Even... More surprising is the wide variation uh, in the use of the death penalty in different parts of Europe. The lowest was in Spain and the Spanish Empire, where the percentage of executions among people actually convicted remained in the single digits. That is, convicted of witchcraft, but still fewer than 10% executed. In fact, one surprise that recent researchers have found was that the Inquisition in Spain and in Rome, developed a set of procedural safeguards that made conviction itself much more difficult to obtain than it was in other jurisdictions. The Inquisition required automatically any death sentence had to be reviewed and go up on appeal to central inquisitorial authorities. And that itself greatly reduced uh, conviction rates and execution rates. Eventually, some of the other regions of Europe adopted the Inquisition's practice of instituting an automatic appeal procedure in all death penalty uh, cases. And wherever this happened, like Denmark in 1576, in some parts of France, immediately we see a lowering of convictions and of executions. The highest rate of executions, more than 90% of those accused occurred in certain parts of Switzerland and of France and of the German lands. So what we have here is a tremendous uniformity of belief in witches, but a huge range of decisions about whether or not to execute them, from under 10% in Spain to more than 90% in Switzerland and parts of Germany and France. Some of the smallest political units had the largest number of executions. Here we are in sleepy little Kvedlenberg and that was the little town that executed 133 witches in one day. It certainly doesn't look that dangerous, does it? So what else do we know? We know that uh, the urban areas were just as eager to prosecute as rural ones. We know that on average, 75% of the accused were women but even that varies widely. Prosecutions of women was highest in England. 92% of all of those accused of witches were women in England. And since most of the victims were women of these of these charges, except in Russia, it's been common in the past to argue that what we're seeing here is a kind of male fear of women, sexual fear of women. Okay. Uh, but Why now? Negative views of women, what we call misogyny, had been existing in European culture, and certainly not only European culture, for hundreds of years without producing witch trials. Moreover, the majority of those accused were old, and that doesn't represent any dangerous seductiveness. Some people, again mostly journalists, have argued that the victims in reality really were witches. Now, this argument has two forms. Uh, People have said, well, uh, these are people who were practicing an ancient uh, pagan religion, worshiping a female god that existed before Christianity, and they had never given it up. So that's what they are. They're really witches. Uh, People in Berkeley believe this. You see it on bumper stickers all the time. We have no evidence that this is so, that there were any people that still believed in a female uh, god who were being arrested. An alternative version argues that the defendants had convinced themselves that they could practice sorcery, uh, like, say, palm readers may do today. And some historians have actually gone so far as to argue that these women were cunning folk, that was the term used then, who were successful in practicing herbal medicine and village medicine. And they conclude from that Uh, that these women posed a threat to rival power holders, the clergy, doctors, city fathers. But we have no evidence for this, either beyond confessions produced under torture. No evidence that the victims really thought they were witches, except perhaps for the handful of delusionals, the schizophrenics. And they exist in every society. Uh, They were undoubtedly capable of raving around in grandiose ways, but no one would consider them powerful women. And 17th century people were just as able to tell a lunatic from a sane person as we are, and it was overwhelmingly the sane that got accused. Nevertheless, we quite often still see both historians and journalists and people who wrote a textbook that has been assigned in History 5 within the last 10 years that the witch panic came because men were feeling threatened as women became more empowered. It broke out because women threatened to break out from under male control. So what we see in the witch craze is history's first backlash against liberated women. The victims martyrs of female empowerment. Now, this view requires us to see women in general not only as becoming more powerful in our period but also uh, to imagine that people accusing them could see that they were becoming more powerful and there's no evidence either that women were threatening to do anything new or that males thought they were becoming more powerful far from challenging anyone's authority or power the characteristic defendant lived alone, was relatively isolated, and quite often relied on the charity of her neighbors. They were female, perhaps because that conformed to pre-existing folktales, and perhaps because these women were not the most powerful, but the most vulnerable in society. Now, at one time, historians hypothesized that the witch trials paralleled the growth of the early modern state in the Renaissance, that the trials were tools of centralizing governments, a way for them to grab jurisdiction from the church or from the provinces. And we still see that hypothesis in print. It, too, has been disproved. The initiative in trying people for witchcraft seems to have come neither from the central government, the crown, nor from illiterate mobs, but most often from literate, middle-level, local elites, people that straddled the boundary between learned culture and pop culture. These were the ones pressing for vigorous prosecution. The central authorities were often quite skeptical. So if we try to generalize from all this, we can reach some tentative conclusions. It appears to be the case that whenever central authorities at the national level, whether they were secular or religious authorities, whenever they exercised some supervision over prosecution, the rates of convictions went down, in fact, remained relatively low. One of the abuses that central judicial authorities tried to prevent was the use of torture, or at least the unwarranted use of torture. But when we move into small jurisdictional units where there is no higher authority with which to lodge an appeal, like the small cantons in Switzerland or many of the very small German states in the Holy Roman Empire, conviction rates are exceptionally high. So that's one thing we know. Another question is why now? Why the appearance in the Renaissance? Why this dramatic intensification in the late 16th? and early 17th century. Any hypotheses on this? This is one of those you can't be wrong questions because we don't know the answer. I have some hypotheses of myself, but I'd like to think that you've been thinking along here, trying to figure out why now people suddenly, not the Middle Ages, but now they want to prosecute these witches? Yes. Yeah, I think that's very good. They're imagining it's the end times is coming, and this, for one thing, it makes people pretty anxious. <laughs> you know, good guy. One of because of all the splits in the church. to sort of the, the the splits in the church it has been suggested, and I think that's a good idea too. Also, partly because it makes people uncertain. Uh, they used to know what was what, and now uh, now which authority is right? It's also been suggested that the Reformation uh, made people who believed in it much more insecure before because it got rid of guardian angels, uh, and it got rid of the intercession of saints you could pray to to sort of help you out, but it didn't get rid of the devil. Uh, in fact, Luther emphasized the reality of the devil. So uh, Luther, when he was in the Wartburg Castle, was so tempted by the devil, he threw his inkwell at him. And I'm told, <laughs> I've never seen it, uh, it's, uh, the blot is still on the wall. So one idea is it's both a split brought about by the Reformation, but also uh, this censure alone in the universe with the devil, uh, and God is very far away. But this, of course, would only explain uh, Protestant countries Uh, and we know it's not confined to Protestant countries. Another hypothesis that's been put forward is the secularization of church property by monarchs uh, contributed to the plausibility of witches. Because the church property had once supported charities, charitable foundations, poor houses, uh, orphanages, things like that, but when the princes... Uh, strive to complete sovereignty within their own area, Uh, one of the first things they do, whether they're Reformation people or Catholics, is try to get control of church property, sometimes simply take it. But rarely do they continue to support these charities, and certainly not at the earlier levels. So the social groups in society who were poor in the late 15th and early 16th century are much more likely to be poorer as time goes on, and more isolated. And this poverty was probably increased by environmental changes. Some historians have associated the witch craze with what environmentalists call the Little Ice Age, uh, which is going on in this period. Winters are colder, springs are later and wetter, Uh, the growing season therefore is much shorter, and harvests are thinner, Uh, not big at all. And that means less food to go around. People are more vulnerable. Add to this the plague. I'll go into that a little more later on. Never disappears during this period, the Black Death. Add to this, as Guy pointed out, constant wars, rebellions, disruptions this same period. I want to remind you of a statistic I gave in my fourth lecture. In England, in 1688, 50% of the population, it was estimated, were what were called masterless men. Men without a master meant a man without a job, and therefore presumably without a home. Who has the burden of supporting these people who were vagrants, squatters? Not the church anymore. It doesn't have property. It's fallen now on the whole community of taxpayers. And this burden is perceived to be, and probably really is, a much heavier burden than before. Also, perhaps society's ideas towards poverty have changed. Some people suggest this. Poverty is no longer seen as a kind of uh, public responsibility, uh, but rather a private evil. Somebody didn't do something right, and that's why uh, he's lounging around uh, in front of my cottage. This burden may be an indirect way to explain why women are disproportionately the targets, for so many witch trials in the West, but not, oddly enough, in Russia. You may remember that also in my fourth lecture we talked about the Western family pattern. The ordinary family in the West, particularly north of Italy and Spain, is not an extended family over several generations and married relatives all living together, but much more likely to be the nuclear family. Man, wife, underage kids. Widowed parents are sometimes taken in But not always. And under this system, since women lived longer, a poor old woman was likely to be the most socially isolated person around, most vulnerable to her neighbor's suspicions. Now, I'm not saying that people in the West were consciously looking at these poor old women and saying, hey, if I accuse them of witchcraft, local taxes are going to go down. Uh, Certainly not. But it does seem possible that the poor began to be increasingly perceived as a blight. And such hostility made it much easier to see them as evildoers deserving not help but punishment. Not their gender so much as their social marginality seems to be the best explanation for the predominance of women. In Russia, however, they are not predominant. And Russia... The extended family was the norm right up to the early 20th century. Old women remained integrated in this whole social uh, support network of the family. Uh, here, men predominate over women among the accused by seven to three as defendants in witchcraft cases. So to recap, prosecutions for witchcraft was done uh, were done Uh, by almost every nationality in Europe, except the Irish. Glad to hear that. My husband is Irish. He's out of that one. They began in western Switzerland, southwestern France, northern Italy, the German Rhineland. And then they spread throughout all of western Europe, then up to Scotland, which very high prosecution rates, and England, over to Austria, up to Denmark, They didn't reach the peripheries, Sweden, Poland, Hungary, Finland, Transylvania, Russia, colonial Massachusetts, until the 17th century. And this geography suggests that the trials begin in the most modern and progressive regions of Europe and then spread to more backward ones, just as beneficial scientific and industrial developments begin in the most modern regions and spread outward. So what we have here is a rather terrible sign that in spite of the breakup of Christendom into warring religious denominations and competing sovereign states, we still do have, even after the Reformation, a common civilization, though one marked in this case not by great achievements but by horrible crimes. As far as we know, the witch panic did exist elsewhere in the world, uh, but witch trials do seem to be unique in Europe. I'm saying that tomorrow someone will write an article that will prove I'm wrong. But this is a crime that is very judicialized. And in my view, that holds the key to what is happening. In my view, the chief explanation for why the panic happened when it did from about 1450 to 1700 is a fairly simple one. The communications revolution, the printing press, remember, roughly 1454. Like the Internet, the press is capable of disseminating false beliefs just as quickly as true ones. And in this new age of mass communication, uh, which played such an important role in the Reformation, We see a faithful role here. The printing press not only disseminated popular and learned beliefs about witches, much more important, it disseminated information about the trials, about confessions, about convictions. So what was changed by the printing press was not so much people's willingness to believe in witches, but their sense of crisis This is created by this new information of what's going on outside their village or their town. In 1650, an English bishop noted uh, that a witch used to be a rarity, quote, now hundreds are discovered in one shire. He's been reading, if not the newspapers, uh, the local broadsheets and pamphlet literatures. Now, clearly, the two movements, Reformation witchcraft trials, feed on each other in complicated ways. Not because of anything specifically connected to new beliefs, but because, as I said before, the conflict in beliefs produces anxiety. The confidence people used to have that their traditional rituals would work, their saints and guardian angels would protect them, their authorities, the church and the state, uh, knew what was right. This has been shaken. What stopped the persecutions? Some respected textbooks, but not ours, I'm glad to say, still say that the witch scare declined because of the rise of science and of a more rational philosophy. I don't think that's the case. Belief in magic and science exist side by side in the same people, as we'll see next week. Hobbes, the chemist Robert Boyle, believe in witches, Isaac Newton, in alchemy. Other textbooks, also not ours, I'm glad to say, say that people began to feel more secure because of advances in medicine and because of the invention of the insurance company. This is really nonsense. This is an age in which the doctor's main skill uh, to cure you for what ailed you was what? Purging. Purging. He'd put a couple of leeches on you and suck your blood out That's the doctor's skill. Most ordinary people, until the 1920s, thought a doctor was just as likely to kill you as to cure you, and in many parts of Europe they were absolutely right. As for insurance, it was, in fact, already invented in Italy during the Renaissance, largely by these big merchants to offset potential losses to their ships as they went out into the Mediterranean and might be captured by Barbary pilots or the pirates or the Turks or whatever. But insurance wasn't anything that anybody but the very, very rich elites could afford until the late 19th century when trade unions began to pool uh, the dues of their members and offer it to members. Prosecutions for witchcraft were ended by authorities who still believed in the reality of witchcraft and in the possibility of diabolical intervention in the world. It was not philosophical or scientific arguments, but legal arguments that eventually caused them not to act on this fundamental belief. Throughout this period, at least in regions with stronger central institutions, some efforts are being made to protect the defendant. And in fact, sometimes the accusers were prosecuted for making false charges and for defamation of character and the victim might actually be awarded damages. And as the judges began to accumulate a record, began to take note of the charges that were occasionally proved false by real evidence, not torture evidence, but real evidence, like, for example, a rock-solid alibi. Somebody might have seen Catalina Mateo. Six people in good standing might have seen her at exactly that time. Obviously, she couldn't have been a witch. And as this kind of evidence accumulated, they began to realize that these charges had been backed up by confessions made under torture. And so they began to be skeptical about the value of torture. And then they got to be skeptical about the accusers themselves. As one English judge said in 1712, after listening to a long litany of accusations against a defendant, well, as far as I know, there's no law against flying. So that expresses his skepticism. All right. We have time for a stretch. Anyone wants to take one? Two minutes, perhaps? Pardon? Oh, yeah, i got to push that. Okay? turn our attention away from is to the more general context, and then I'm going to look at a specific case in the 16th century in, in France. But I'm going to talk about something that's often called the general crisis of the 17th century. I myself think you could also uh, put this crisis in the 16th century. One sign that this sense of Crisis is more or less general in this period. One piece of evidence is that it affected even Jews who are not really party to the debates over the Reformation. in the mid 17th century, a young man from Smyrna, which is oops which is in uh, today 's Turkey. It was was largely a Greek inhabited city. A man named Shabbatai Tzvi, after years of studying the Talmud and Kabbalistic texts, came to the conclusion that he was the Messiah and he was the one that would lead all the Jews of the entire world back to Jerusalem. Although as he continued to think about it, maybe it was Gaza. Uh, But in any case, be that as it may, And all over Europe, as far away as Hamburg or Amsterdam, Jews began to sell their houses. They began to pack up their belongings for a long, long trip. Even Spinoza in Amsterdam, who was pretty skeptical about a lot of things, thought maybe there is something in this. But when the Ottoman sultan uh, didn't like the thought of this mass immigration, Uh, coming in on his hands and confronted Shabbatai Tzvi in 1666 with an alternative, uh, convert to Islam or die, (laughs) the new Messiah converted. And many of the Shabbataians in the Ottoman Empire around Smyrna, here's Smyrna, more or less Smyrna, uh, converted with him and remained into the Ottoman Empire right into modern times with a special name, Dönmeh, connected to them, and so forth. But elsewhere, those Jews who had packed up in the rest of Europe were thrown into confusion and despair. It was, it's been said that all the subsequent movements within European Jewry, from Reform Judaism in Central Europe to Hasidism in Eastern Europe, were a working out of the psychological consequences of this great messianic crisis, equivalent to Christianity's persistent belief in the end times that the Second Coming is about to happen. The 16th and 17th centuries also saw repeated outbreaks of plague. Now, we tend to think of the Black Death as something that occurred in the late Middle Ages, and then we move on to the next topic. But in fact, although never quite as severe as in the 14th century, plague was endemic in Europe until the 18th. Every crowded European city from Hamburg to Venice was repeatedly thinned out, especially hard hit in the 17th century were Castile and Seville. Uh, These, by the way, are uh, quarantine signs for the pest. That's what it's called in German. And in fact, quarantine proved to be the best way to handle uh, this. Russia, Naples got it. Uh, Seville lost half its population. Uh, Naples lost half of its population London suffered nine major episodes uh, after 1563 and lost about 20,000 people, more than all the witch trials put together. Now, if this weren't enough, the period was beset by war, civil war, foreign war. In the 200 years between 1500 and 1700, we see more wars in European history, in terms of the proportion of years in which people are at war, 95%, and the frequency of the war, new outbreak every three years, uh, and in terms of average duration, extent, and proportional magnitude of any other time in European history. How can we explain this extreme belligerence? Well, everywhere we see an emerging... State trying to be sovereign and trying to extend its territory outward and to tighten its hold I don't know, remember, well, I'll put that there to tighten its hold over the population inside of its boundaries but after the Reformation the situation gets complicated by the interaction between these state policies of expansion and the religious question in England, think back Religion got mixed up with Henry VIII's divorce, and as a consequence, the issue Protestant or Catholic becomes entangled with which of several possible claimants to the throne, Mary, Edward, or Elizabeth, was the rightful, legitimate heir. And the spread of new religious ideas in the 16th and 17th century meant that even monarchs with no obvious rivals couldn't count on the loyalty of their subjects, if those subjects had a different religion. And this meant, and we'll see more about that on Thursday, this meant that there's an additional element of instability built into matters of state. We can see this in the Dutch Revolt, Uh, the Dutch are Calvinists at this time, against the Catholic Habsburg overlords in the Netherlands, this is the Habsburg region. Uh, between 1555 and 85, and then on and off again until 1648, the French crown, unlike the Habsburgs, didn't have the problem of being a dynasty with territories every which place in Europe. Uh, that would have made that would have given it additional problems. that would have been thought far to be foreign wherever it was. But the French crown also didn't have the advantage of the English Tudors or Ferdinand and Isabella, in having already reduced its nobility before religious strife enters in. Now, remember the nobility. They're the big men. They're people who, in previous centuries, by hook or crook, managed to get their hands on a lot of land. Land meant they could raise armies and generally have things their own way. Given the laws of inheritance, they're able to pass this power and land down to descendants. And what we're now calling sovereigns, princes, monarchs, are people who began like nobles but just got lucky. And their families managed to be, as the Habsburgs were, more successful in grabbing land and power. But this also means that they are very easy to topple if some distant cousin, uh, another noble, gets even luckier. The monarch's claim to sovereignty depends upon his being able to get the big nobles to obey his laws. And throughout the early modern period, we see a continual struggle between nobles and aristocrats on the one hand and monarchs on the other, each trying to assert their power over the other. Even in Russia, Muscovy is its call now, uh, the Boyers plotted constantly against the Tsar. Here we see the first Romanov in 1613, who himself is a Boyer, now elevated. In England, however, many of the greatest, most powerful noble leaders had already been killed off in wars right before the Reformation begins. So the Tudor monarchs are really in a fortunate position. There might be lots of conflicts over religion, over succession, but they don't have a class of really powerful noble landowners to have to deal with. The French crown hadn't fully succeeded in getting France's territorial nobility to submit to the laws of the state when the Reformation arrived. And this was a fateful fact. Because it meant that a wedge existed by which Protestantism when it entered France could find a power base. And it meant that politics and religion could get entwined in France in even more dangerous ways than in England, Italy, and Spain. By the mid-16th century, French Protestants, they were mostly Calvinists, we called them Huguenots, made up about 10% of the population. But their impact was far disproportionate to their numbers because they had recruited among the nobility. And it's been estimated that as many as 50% of the French nobility were Calvinist by 1570. Now, Calvinism, named after its founder, the Frenchman John Calvin, took Luther's positions and developed them into even more radical directions. Today, we associate Calvinists with kind of stodgy members of the middle class, puritanical, driven by the work ethic. Early Calvinism was a warrior faith. It saw life itself as a war against evil, and it had a strong belief in predestination, and that meant it was not a religion for wimps. It appealed only to people who were already tough, strong, confident, and that meant, who's more likely to adopt that view? The nobles in France, Scotland, Poland, Hungary, Transylvania, the Netherlands, all the way to Brazil— The nobility are the ones who become Calvinists. And in France, that meant that a group that was dedicated, determined, and above all armed have a religion in opposition, not just to the majority, but more important, to the royal family. Now, Lutheranism had allied with the rulers in Germany and Scandinavia. It had respected the established order, as you know, in Luther's diatribes against the peasants. Not so the Calvinists. Both because of their traditional noble arrogance and the self-righteousness that came from their religious fervor, French Huguenots had no inhibitions about armed rebellion against legal authorities if they felt their cause was just. Secondly, the Huguenots' ability to resist the crown was aided by the fact they were concentrated on France's periphery, on the southern, western, and northern edges of the country, and particularly their strongholds in the south. Now, not a surprise. These are the regions farthest from Paris, hardest for the crown to subdue. And especially in the south and west, the Protestant areas were honeycombed with walled towns, which could serve as military fortifications. So here are the divisions of France by mid-16th century, divisions that would last at least a 100 years. In the long term, we see a division: uh, the center, Paris, against the periphery. We also see a division: crown against noble. This is long term. The conflict isn't always in the open, but it's always there, at least latent. <laughs> and now, with the Reformation, we see added to this Catholic versus Calvinist. This is new. And these three divisions reinforce each other. The Calvinist nobility used their territorial base as a lever to force the crown to make a settlement similar to the one established in Germany with the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. I hope you remember this. Uh, this, The fundamental provision of this peace was each local prince, whether he was a duke or a king or whatever, got to determine the religion of everybody in his territory. And that's what, of course, these big Calvinist noblemen wanted. They wanted to run the religious show in their own regions. The third source of the Calvinist's strength, after their support among the nobles and their location on the periphery, were their tight, disciplined organizations. Local bodies were linked to a national headquarters, a synod. Now, these local bodies were heavily armed, fortified strongholds far from the capital. They were self-confident. They were used to command. They were militant, tightly organized. They looked an awful lot like a state within a state. And throughout the 16th century, fighting breaks out. The crown will then make some arrangement with these people and give them certain rights. That makes the rest of the country, the majority Catholic, really furious. And fighting breaks out again. You could say they're a state waiting to take over a state. And you could say also that the French crown in the course of the century of state-making had made some progress in integrating some of its laws and its institutions, but it was not strong enough to withstand a succession crisis, which is the nightmare of every dynasty, not just the Tudors. In 1559, such a crisis occurred, which demonstrated the vulnerability of any dynasty to the whims of what Machiavelli calls Fortuna. The king took uh, took part in a jousting tournament to celebrate a new peace treaty. And this king of Valois, Henry II, you don't have to know his name, charged headlong into his opponent's lance, which pierced his eye and probably his brain as well. Eminent physicians were called in hastily. They uh, made experiments on the eyes of four criminals that they beheaded just for this purpose, But Henry II died 10 days later anyway. And then comes the classic situation that affects every monarchy sooner or later. He had three sons. None of them were old enough to rule. Now, in this circumstance, power is always up for grabs, whoever is bold enough and strong enough to take it. And that turned out to be only the widowed queen, Catherine de' Medici, the daughter of Lorenzo de' Medici, Who was the person to whom Machiavelli dedicated the prince? And Catherine seems to have been reading the prince uh, very well. She was determined that since her sons were bound to be the pawns of someone, it had better be their mother. And so she tried to rule France herself on behalf of these boys until they got old enough to take over. Uh, But this was very difficult for her. She's, after all, a foreigner. She's only 40 years old when she's taking over. She has very few allies at court. She's in a very weak position, and the central government itself is weak, so the provinces assert themselves. Now, in France, the provinces were dominated by three huge families, clans, the Bourbons, the Montmorency's, and the Guise family. Each ruled, basically, their own territory, and they could raise large armies there, diverting tax money, that should have gone to the royal treasury. Catherine needed an ally really bad. Now, she might not have cared whether France was Catholic or Protestant personally, but dynastic considerations told her she had to ally with Spain, a kind of traditional enemy of France, and that she would have more leverage if she allied with one clan rather than two. Two clans were Protestant, one was Catholic. And that meant the Guise family, who were Catholics, rather than the two Huguenot clans, the Bourbons and the Montmorensees. Now, this is the kind of situation where the forces of the nobility, feudalism, you could say, face a weak crown. It's almost always deadly, dangerous. Some historians have compared this situation to the situation in Iraq after the removal of a strong leader, Saddam Hussein. Even if there hadn't been religious Divi- uh, divisions. The state was in for trouble because of the geographical divisions. But the religious divisions made it ripe for civil war, and it also meant that each religious group could call for help on co religionists outside, which brought in the danger of foreign intervention. And before long, each side had lined up foreign allies. The Huguenots had financial support from German Protestants and Queen Elizabeth from England. The Guise had the backing of Spain, and the trigger uh, for bloodshed was when the original commanders of two of these three sides were assassinated, and that unleashed a blood feud that fed on re- mutual retaliation. And I won't go into the uh, uh, whole bloody story, story of the French sectarian wars, where you really have something that's a halfway house between a civil war and a personal feud, a public civil war, private personal feud. The Huguenot nobility repeatedly showed their power by blockading Catholic Paris, starving it of food and positioning themselves to make raids. And this spurred Catholic vigilante groups in Paris, including monks with guns, Uh, to hold the local Huguenot minority, minority hostage or even to take revenge against them as it itself was confronted with starvation. In 1572, after 10 years of inconclusive combat, the Huguenots in the countryside seemed to be getting the upper hand and they managed to persuade the pliable young king, Charles IX, you don't need to know his name, to undertake a shift in his foreign policy to support the Calvinists in the Netherlands against Spain, uh, who, of course, was an ally with the Catholics, and to marry off his sister to a Huguenot prince. Catholics everywhere saw, uh uh-oh, their days were numbered. The two Huguenot clans, with all of their retinues, their armed forces, converged on Paris for a royal wedding, expecting a week of feasting, but... The king's tilt towards the Huguenots raised the danger of Spanish intervention to protect its interests, and the queen mother, pressured by vigilante opinion in the Paris neighborhoods, feeling that mother knows best, uh, decided uh, to take advantage of the rumor that the Huguenot nobility was planning to kill the young king when they came in and to ambush all the wedding guests. The ambush took place on St. Bartholomew's Day, 1572. It exceeded anything Machiavelli had praised uh, about Cesare Borgia, any treachery that Cortes had practiced on the Aztecs uh, or Pizarro on the Incas. Armed squads broke into houses where the Huguenots were sleeping, murdered the leadership, and the blood wrath spread. Uh, so people would settle old scores, they would... Students would murder their professors who kept them in class too long. Uh, Debtors would assassinate creditors. Women and children were hacked to death. And 3,000 Huguenots were killed in Paris. And then, as word got out, another 10,000 in the countryside. Uh, This produced a Europe-wide sensation. Here was mass murder in Europe's greatest capital plotted, apparently, by the government itself. It didn't break Huguenot power. It didn't end the conflict. It achieved nothing but to discredit the Valois dynasty, but it became a byword for murderous Catholic fanaticism painted by Protestant artists on into the 19th century and became one of the bedtime stories Protestants told their children to make them behave. Watch out. Catherine de' Medici is going to get you. Uh, Well, I will go into how this conflict was solved in the next class. Yes. Question. You know how you're speaking about uh, witchcraft and like the ends of witchcraft were due to authority. And, well, the what, ends of witchcraft, just a minute, I didn't quite hear the last Were We're more due to like authority figures.